Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be speaking once again with psychologist Melanie Joy. And they will be speaking about Dr. Joy's latest book, How to End Injustice Everywhere, Understanding the Common Denominator Driving All Injustices to Create a Better World for Humans, Animals, and the Planet. And I feel like this is a topic, I haven't listened to the interview yet, but I feel this is a topic that is really one of your topics, the commonalities among all forms of injustice and unfairness, that this has always been a really interesting subject for you. Totally. And I'll tell you something that I find fascinating. When I interviewed Dr. Joy, I actually did two back-to-back interviews with her. One was for our hen house with a vegan lens, of course, which I'll get back to that in a second. But I also was able to interview her on this book, a completely different set of questions, like pretty much no overlap, maybe a little overlap, but not much, for Connections, which is the talk show where I sometimes fill in as a host at WXXI. That hasn't aired yet. But I guess my point is that there is so much here. And the fact that, as you just said in your intro, this this kind of mentality can be applied across the board is fascinating to me because ultimately I consider myself, you know, a social justice activist. Insert social justice movement here. It is, of course, led by my passion for animal rights, but I think that animal rights encompasses uh, a plethora of social justice causes. So I don't look at it as just one thing. You know what I mean? I, I think I know what you mean. Yeah, I think it's really true that that maybe not everything, but an awful lot of things just arise from the same, the same, I'm better than you, I have to be better than you, or I won't be good enough kind of mentality. And, and yeah, it's one of the deep flaws with, with the rather deeply flawed species that has put itself in charge of this planet. And one thing that reminds me of what you're talking about. When I was summing it up to Dr. Joy, when I was interviewing her, I think for the WXXI interview, I said, so let me get this straight. It's the commonality of the oppressor that is what we're talking about here, the commonality, the common mindset of the oppressor. And Dr. Joy said, well, it's the mindset of an oppressive society. And of course, I'm paraphrasing, but she was making a distinction between the commonality of the mindset of the oppressor versus the commonality of the mindset of an oppressive society. And I thought that was really fascinating because she was basically saying we're all part of an oppressive society. And so there's not really any use in saying the mindset of the oppressor because it's not like people wake up in the morning and are like, oh, hey, good morning, I'm an oppressor. But of course we are. Like we all are. So I just liked that sort of uh, fair game. We're all oppressors and therefore the tools that she has in her book can benefit anyone who wants to end injustice. You know what I mean? I mean, that sounds like a beautiful sentiment. You know, I'm a little bit more on the, yeah, maybe we're all oppressors, but some are more oppressive than others. But, you know, don't listen to me. Listen to Melanie Joy because she's a much better person than I am. And oh she's God. not as sour on the human race as I am by any means. Well, you know, the night's still young. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, let's switch to gratitude. 
about face, gratitude. So as you may know, we refer to some of our most dedicated supporters of our Hen House as our barnyard benefactors. And these amazing folks show their love for the Our Hen House organization and podcast with at least $500 a year donation. And we are so incredibly grateful for them. We literally would not be able to operate our podcasts without our barnyard benefactors. And one of the cool perks we offer to them as a shout out on the Our Hen House podcast or on the Animal Law podcast of one of their favorite animal rights organizations or vegan businesses. So this week, we're excited to show some love for the New Hampshire Animal Rights League. They work for the fair treatment of all animals in New Hampshire and beyond and are an all-volunteer organization working on behalf of animals since 1977. We invite you to check out all of their great work at nhanimalrights.org. And if you want to join our hen house, as, as, yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I mean, I imagine anybody listening who's in New Hampshire who's not familiar with them probably wants to check them out. And I noticed that they are really hard at work right now because New Hampshire uh, has a lot of hunting and, you know, they're really doing their best to to do what they can to to stop the mayhem or to limit the mayhem. So good for them. Totally, totally, totally. I am so excited to learn about this this organization. And if you want to join our hen house as one of our amazing barnyard benefactors, check out ourhenhouse.org slash barnyard benefactor or email Jen at ourhenhouse.org. By the way, you will also have the opportunity to have your name announced on the podcast. This particular donor didn't want their name announced, but we will announce an organization of your choice and your name if you would like. So thank you in advance for that. It's an exciting time with our end of year donations going on. And we have so much gratitude for all of you. All right, switching gears again, some sad news. Why don't you deliver the sad news, Marianne? Yeah, actually, we have a lot of sad news this week. And, you know, what are you going to do? But some of you are probably already aware of some of these stories and others may not be. But let's start off with the fact that Karen Davis, who, you know, has she really has been part of this movement for as long as I can remember. She was doing it long before me and such a powerful force and vibrant speaker and the founder, of course, of United Poultry Concerns in, in Maryland. And, you know, we're in, in the middle of, uh, of chicken country where they, they raise and kill so many chickens. And she's done amazing work. And she's just always been such a force because the level of the depth of, of her emotional connection to the animals, you know, along with her great intelligence and her great writing has really just been I just feel really sad that she's gone because uh, that's the news, of course, that she she died this week uh, at the age of 79 and apparently she's been ill for quite a while. And if you're not familiar with her work and you would like to be, and of course, she's written many, many books, but also she was on the podcast. That would be episode 523. And you probably want to check that out. That's the first of our very sad news this week. We will link in the show notes to Karen Davis's episode on our hen house. And it is a really sad loss. So thank you for sharing that, Marianne. And I hope that those of you listening who aren't familiar with her work can take a little while to listen to the episode of our hen house with her. Our second piece of bad news, uh, though it doesn't involve a death, and probably many of you have heard this, uh, and that's that Wayne Shang was was convicted 
in the latest open rescue case that's been on trial out in California. That was in Sonoma County. He ended up being the only defendant who went to trial. They they kept cutting down the charges and cutting down the, the defendants that they wanted to go to trial against. You know, and it was pretty obvious that one of the reasons they were doing that was in order to limit the evidence that was able to come in at trial because uh, they, they really narrowed the charges and then would not let in any evidence that was even even eligible for these charges. And that will be a big issue on appeal. But he was immediately remanded to prison. So Wayne is in prison now. And, you know, this is not unexpected. And everybody's putting a brave face on it. And of course, Wayne is putting the bravest face of all on it. But it's it's really tragedy uh, that in this country, you go to prison for rescuing animals from horrible, horrible situations. And there will be many issues for appeal. I think there was a gag order placed on the defendants preventing them from talking to the media. There were many, many very questionable evidentiary issues where uh, evidence was suppressed that that should not have been, in my opinion. And yeah, as I said, not unexpected, but really, you know, prison is not a good place to be and it grieves me. So I, I encourage everybody to keep track of that. And I think you can probably keep track of it on the Direct Action Everywhere website. Take any opportunities to communicate with Wayne if, if that information is provided. Uh, I'm sure he would be grateful for that. And we will, of course, be keeping an eye on it. Somebody did ask a question of whether I'm going to cover this trial on the Animal Law Podcast. And I'm not sure. I, I think there's a good chance I that will happen. But I, even though obviously this is a big news item right now, I really don't feel it's ready for an episode because there, there just has to be time to gather the issues for appeal and, and strategy. And, and I'd much rather do that kind of deep dive interview that I tend to do on the animal law podcast than just, just reporting on the news uh, of what's happened. So hopefully in the future that will come together. But for the moment, I think just keeping on top of, of the news items and, and there's a great article on sentient media, which we will uh, link to in the show notes if you want to read a little bit more about what happened. But, you know, there's this picture of Wayne Shang being handcuffed. <sighs> just what a world. Yeah, it's really, yeah, my heart is broken about this. And yeah, also I will encourage our our readers to follow that link and read about it. And yes, like you said, communicate with Wayne if you can. So thank you. One more bit of sad news since you're on a roll, Marianne, why don't you take this one too? Yeah, this one does involve a death. And many of you have probably also heard this, but of course, Esther the Wonder Pig has passed away. And Esther was a real heroine in the animal rights movement. And her dads, who kind of rescued her by accident, thought she was a, you know, a tiny little pig was going to stay tiny and turned out that she wasn't. She became enormous. And so her dad, Steve Jenkins and Derek Walter, just turned their lives upside down, founded a a sanctuary where she could live and and helped her become one of the great social media stars of this movement. She had a wonderful life and they had a wonderful life with her. And I think given her enormous size, you know, the way they're bred, uh, the fact that she lived till 11 years old was not an untimely I mean, all deaths are untimely, but was not an unexpectedly untimely death. So she has, of course, had a number of illnesses and they've taken very, very good care of her. But these these animals are, you know, they're, they're born to die. They're not born to live. So uh, the fact that 
she lived this wonderful life for that long is is truly a blessing. But, you know, she's gone. And yeah, sorry, all the bad news, but what are you going to do? We will link to also in the show notes, lots of links this week to when we interviewed Steve and Derek, the dads, back, back, back on episode 337. So keep an eye out for that. And and I should also mention there's a wonderful article by Kenny Torella and Box um, about, you know, her passing, but also her life. Oh, and let me just add, I hopefully Esther's legacy can, I, in fact, not hopefully, I have no doubt that Esther's legacy will carry on far, far longer than she did. So that is a beautiful thing. She will be missed. You know, they knew this was going to happen. And, you know, I have no doubt that they, they're just brilliant social media people. I don't know, like just brilliant. I mean, she was such a charming, (laughs) charming creature on social media. And and that is obviously largely due, not that she doesn't get credit where credit is due, but there's a lot of credit due to her dads. They're brilliant at it. So I hope they continue to to do that. Yeah. And I know they're not a couple anymore, but I have no doubt that they'll continue to, to create magic around anything they do moving forward. So sad, sad, sad. Yeah. I actually did not know that. We're not a couple anymore either, but we keep going. You just shocked like a quarter of our listeners, (laughs) by the way. Okay, Uh, so you mentioned the Animal Law podcast a little while ago. Tell us about what's been happening in the world of the Animal Law podcast. Actually, I'm talking about the October episode. I'm a little late in reporting on it, but great. You have to listen to this episode. You're going to love it. The title of the episode is The Case of the FBI at the Meat Conference. And I'm interviewing Will Lowry, who's been on the podcast before, but that's when he was working for Animal Outlook. He's since started his own legal advocacy organization, Animal Partisan. And he's talking about a Freedom of Information Act request, which, you know, those are relatively simple legal matters. uh, And anybody can make a request. Of course, you know, they have to be well done and well formed. But it's really important that anybody in this movement know a little bit more about how to do one and how how to be effective with them. His Freedom of Information Act request has now become a lawsuit because it was not uh, complied with by the FBI. And what he was asking about, what he wanted information about, was the FBI and its relationship to animal agribusiness and its attitudes towards animal rights activists. And you, as you can imagine... There is a suspicion on Will's part and on many other parts that there's stuff, there's some problems here. In particular, since we were just talking about DXC, some of the issues that went on with the um, FBI search for the piglets who were rescued in in a former um, DXC rescue operation and how they entered into a sanctuary searching for these two piglets and and found two piglets who we don't even know whether they're the same ones, but they had different names and cut off the a, a substantial piece of the ear of one of these piglets. Six agents wearing bulletproof vests barrel onto this animal sanctuary, cut off the ear or cut off a substantial piece of the ear of one of these piglets. Apparently, she screamed so loudly that they didn't even bother to try to get DNA from the second pig. Anyway, the stories in this episode are unbelievable. So yeah, if you're worried about the FBI having you on its list, you might want to listen. Wow. That sounds like an incredible episode. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, I love Will. He's the best. 
totally. I have one more thing that I really want to tell people. Tell them. And that is that we were we were overwhelmed, overwhelmed with complaints about doing um rising anxieties during <laughs> during tots. Some of them uh, admittedly were about people felt cheated and felt like, you know, well, we used to have both and now we only have one. The main complaint, I think, is that you're not mean enough. (laughs) And your kindness and niceness and politeness diluted my meanness, or (laughs) some people said snarkiness, kindly, to such an extent that it, it, you know. So, uh, yeah, we're doing Rise Anxieties at the end of the show again. Right. Yeah. So to everyone who doesn't want me to be doing rising anxieties, uh, okay. I, I actually get it. I totally get it. And I can be many things, but I do not pull off the, the snark that Marianne does at all. And so I will stay in my lane. I am, I'm proud to be mean. Yes. Proud to be mean. (laughs) Perfect. All right. I have one more thing that I want to talk about. It's really just an announcement. It's it's a little housekeeping. For our flock members, these are some of our very favorite people on the planet, flock members that make monthly donations. One thing is that we love you. But the other thing is that in case you missed it, we just want to tell you again, we're in the process of changing our membership management to a new system. And this is a nightmare. Well, for us, hopefully not for you. But it does mean that you If you have a current recurring donation, it will be ending this month. That's in November. And we need to get you to sign up on a new platform to continue your flock membership. As you can imagine, this is a real, (laughs) this is not something we're enthusiastic about. We didn't do it on purpose, but there was no way around it. And so we sent out first round of emails. But if you're like me, you miss most of your emails. Maybe you're not like me. We'll try to continue to be in touch, but we also just wanted to give you this heads up here in case you're anything like me, just, you know, ignore half your emails. So annual donors, this only applies to monthly donors, but annual donors also are welcome to head over and get started. And now you can have the option to set your annual donation to recurring as well. So you can just set it and then give us money for the rest of your life and maybe even after you're dead and not even think about it ever again. So we have officially adopted the old set it and forget it motto. This new platform, I know it sounds like a real pain, but it's really good. And we're excited to get everyone started there. So just let us know if you have any questions and if I wasn't clear here. And of course, if you're not already a FOC member, you are more than welcome to become one or make a one-time donation at ourhenhouse.org slash support. Indeedy. All right, now let's get to this interview. Okay, let's do it. I love Dr. Joy. To kick us off. Dr. Melanie Joy is an award-winning psychologist and educator, and she's the author of seven books, including Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, Beyond Beliefs, and How to End Injustice Everywhere. Her work has been featured in major media outlets around the world, and she has received a number of awards, including the Ahimsa Award, previously given to the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela, for her work on global nonviolence. Melanie has given talks and trainings in over 50 countries, and she is also the founding president of the international NGO, Beyond Carnism. You can learn more about her work at carnism.org. She will be joining Jasmine right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. 
Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Hey, everyone. Jasmine here to remind you that we're in the midst of our year-end fundraising season. If you enjoy our podcasts and believe in the change-making power of vegan indie media, please show your support with a tax-deductible donation to our hen house. The best part is all contributions, modest or massive, made between now and December 31st will be matched up to $25,000, but only if we make our goal. So go to ourhenhouse.org slash support to see our new membership options or to make a one-time donation. Or brand new this year, you can text us to donate. Just text HENHOUSE to 53555. That's H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E, no space, to 53555. We appreciate you so much and couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for making the world a kinder place. And we hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to our hen house, Melanie. I am so happy to be here. It's been years. I know, I know. That's bananas to me because the interviews that we've had in the past, they really stick with me. And maybe it's also because I'm constantly reading your work that I feel like you're always there with me, but you really have played such an important role in my own evolution, both personally as well as as an activist, which I'm not sure why I'm differentiating those two things. But (laughs) so first of all, thank you for all that you've done to change the world for animals and to change my own world. I really appreciate you. Well, well, thank you. And you have done some things for me in my life to help me too. And you know, I love our hen house and I'm so grateful. And really, I've been so looking forward to having this conversation. I am too. This book that you just published, congratulations, How to End Injustice Everywhere. It's called the Subtitle, by the way, is also equally important. Understanding the common denominator driving all injustices to create a better world for humans, animals, and the planet. Dr. Joy, you have written so many important books. Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. I said that right, right? I sometimes worry that I flip it, but I got it right. Everybody flips it. That's fine. Most people, when they say the title, flip the animals around. Sometimes like, you know, a sheep comes in or a cat. But but that's kind of good. It kind of makes the point even more. (laughs) But anyway, that book penetrated the mainstream press. And I still think it does. I see a reference in not vegan worlds, but it's such a provocative title and it says everything in it. This is a provocative title also, Melanie. Why did you write How to End Injustice Everywhere? It it really emerged out of Why We Love Dogs. Ultimately, that's where it came from. When I wrote Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows, I, at the time, was studying. I actually wrote my doctoral thesis on the psychology of eating animals, which is what led me to identify what I came to call carnism, the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. And so what I did was I I identified carnism, this system, and also what I was researching was the psychology 
that keeps the system intact. You know, the question that I had was, why do people eat certain animals but not others? Why do people eat any animals at all? for that matter. And this led me to identify the system that I came to call carnism and then to really look at how it's structured. Like what are the social structures that keep it intact? What are the social beliefs that keep it intact and practices? And I think most importantly, what is the mentality that keeps it intact? Like how is it possible for people who are rational and compassionate and who care about other animals and their impact on them, who cringe at images of animal suffering, to nevertheless directly support an industry that slaughters more animals globally in a single day than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history. Like, what is going on here? What kind of psychological gymnastics need to be engaged in, in order for people to act so antithetical or so contradictory to how they really would want to and say that they want to act. And so after I wrote Why We Love Dogs, what I had was not just an understanding of carnism and what I called the carnistic mentality, but sort of a blueprint for all systems that are unjust, all systems that are based on on the exploitation and unjust treatment of certain individuals. And so how to end injustice is sort of like a natural evolution after writing Why We Love Dogs. The same mentality, basically, that drives us to slaughter and consume non-human animals is the mentality that causes us to harm humans and also to harm the environment. And I want to be really clear that I am not comparing the experience of victims of unjust systems. The experience of each set of victims will always be unique. I am saying, however, that the systems themselves are structured similarly and the mentality that enables the violence is the same. So I really believe, especially at this critical point in time, we need all the resources we can get. We don't know if we're going to make it. We don't know if we're going to have a planet to leave to our grandchildren. And those of us who are working to end injustice, whether it's toward animals, humans, or the environment, really need all the help we can get and all the resources we can get. And if we can work more effectively by understanding the mentality of injustice, and we can work more effectively by being more unified with other justice movements, and if we can work more effectively by reducing the infighting in our own movements, which are also based on this same problematic mentality, then this will no doubt help us in this sort of like race against the clock, race against time. Wow. Yeah, it certainly is a race against time. And while we're clarifying, before we really jump in, I want to clarify one more thing. It is a very ambitious title, but you quickly state exactly what you mean to do in the book and what you don't mean to do. So before we really jump in, can you go into that a little bit? What are you doing? What are you not doing? Because How to End Injustice Everywhere, it's a big ask. (laughs) Right. The title is not This Will End Injustice Everywhere. It is a way to facilitate the end of injustice everywhere. And so when we look at injustices in our world, when we look at some of the most pressing problems in our world and also in our personal lives, actually, right? Unjust wars, poverty, racism, patriarchy, carnism, animal exploitation, you know, climate change, toxic workplaces, abusive relationships, infighting in our movements, right? We look at some of these, you know, really pressing problems. We can actually see that they all share a common denominator. And this common denominator is relational dysfunction. It's dysfunctional ways of relating between social groups, 
between individual humans, between humans and non-human animals, between humans and the environment. And so what this means is that building what I call relational literacy, which is the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating, and this, of course, includes communicating because communication is the primary way we relate, is a common denominator in transforming and ending all of these problems. Relational literacy is not the solution to the world's problems, but it is an integral part of any other solution. If our collective level of relational literacy were not so low, we would not elect relationally dysfunctional leaders or vote for relationally toxic policies. So the more we can build our relational skills and other related skills, which we can talk about, the more effectively we will be able to target problems in our world. And I also think we really need to look at, it's, it's, it's not enough to just look at who is oppressing or abusing whom. We really have to get to the core of the problem, which is the mentality that drives us to oppress and abuse in the first place. Otherwise, you know, if we fail to pick out the common threads that are woven through all systems of injustice, we're just going to trade one form of injustice for another if we don't target this core mentality. So this is what I'm focusing on in the book. I talk about the structure of unjust systems and the mentality that drives injustice and ways to shift our thinking and build more resilient movements and also communicate more effectively about the causes that we want to communicate about. I'm not talking about how people can run organizations effectively or fundraise effectively or what kind of campaigns are most effective. There are brilliant activists and advocates of all movements who have been doing this work for a very long time and writing about that. Yeah. And small aside, that's something I really appreciate about you and your work. Speaking to the core of our hen house and why Marianne and I started it nearly 14 years ago, it is kind of recognizing where there are holes in the vegan movement, the animal rights movement, the animal liberation movement, whatever you want to call it. And you are really filling a hole there. And and I believe strongly that every single person listening to this right now has something that they offer that's unique to the movement that isn't currently being done. And I very strongly encourage people to really noodle on what that is. But back to you. Why is it necessary to understand the psychology of injustice if we want to achieve justice? Well, when we look at our different causes, right, you know, different movements, each movement has its own mission, right? The mission to end animal exploitation, social justice missions, environmental justice missions, whatever. Each of our movements, however, is ultimately working for the same meta mission, right? The same overarching mission, which is to create a more relational world. We all are asking people to change or demanding that people change the way they relate. What's different is simply the content. We want people to change the way they relate to non-human animals. We want people to change the way they relate to human animals. We want people to change the way they relate to the environment, for example. And so, our meta mission is ultimately to create a more relational world. And when we recognize this and we really understand the key principles of healthy relationality, healthy relating, basically, then we are much less likely to harm other movements, harm other causes as we promote our own. So for example, vegans are, you know, less likely to use images of objectified women to promote veganism 
or to reinforce pathologizing, you know, ideas of eating disorders when they pr promote veganism. And people who are working for social justice are less likely than to compare certain human groups with animals in a derogatory way as they work towards social justice. So it's really important for us to not recreate or use the same mentality that is driving the problem in the first place in order to promote our own goals, our own mission. Otherwise, we're just recreating injustice in new forms. We're reinforcing injustice in new forms. And also this same mentality, I call this the non-relational mentality. This same mentality is what drives infighting in our movements. And, you know, there is so much lost resources, so many lost resources and productivity and energy and so many people leaving movements that need all the help they can get because of infighting. And when we recognize this mentality and, and develop the skills to, to shift it, we are much better able to reduce our con contribution to infighting and help our movements become more resilient. Okay. I want to talk about relational literacy and infighting. Let's separate those two things for a moment. By the way, just to follow up real quick, those examples that you just offered, you know, perpetuating eating disorders and fat phobia, perpetuating really inappropriate and unethical comparisons of the experience of the oppressed. Did you just say that vegans are less likely to make those? Because I feel like that's a criticism I hear a lot, that people are making those comparisons. Oh, yeah. No, I said when they're more aware and when we have higher levels of relational literacy and understanding, we are less likely to make these kinds of comparisons because doing so is non-relational. Thank you for clarifying. No, it was probably me. It's early in the morning and I'm still caffeinating because you're in Berlin, by the way. How is Berlin doing lately? How is Berlin doing? How's Melanie in Berlin? Are you eating well? I'm a Jewish mother. You know, are you are you eating okay in Berlin? Berlin is like kind of a vegan. You, well, you have to come when you come. I'll take you around. It's okay. It's very very vegan friendly here. Okay, amazing. I just I've only ever been to the airport there in the layover, and I think I've told you I got a jasmine keychain there that has no e. So apparently, the name jasmine in Germany doesn't have an e. So if you ever see anything else that says Jasmine without any, please get it for me and I'll Venmo you. I digress. <laughs> I'm going back to the interview now. Thank you for bearing with that like tangent. So you suggest that building what you call relational literacy is one of the most important things to do to end injustice. Can you unpack that? What is relational literacy and how do we build it? Yeah, so it's one of the most important things to do just period, in my opinion, and certainly to help in, end injustice. And ending injustice is one of the most important things we can be doing. So relational literacy is the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating. There are a lot of principles and tools for building relational literacy. I, I have a book called Getting Relationships Right that I wrote literally to be a one-stop guide to building relational literacy. And on our website, infighting.org, we have a bunch of information on it as well. So all of these principles and tools, however, are based on one simple formula and so the core of all of them. And this is what I call the formula for healthy relating. This applies to any interaction that you have, and that includes communication. Communication is the primary way we relate. Any relationship that you have, relationships are 
really a series of interactions. It applies to how you relate to other animals, how you relate to the environment, how you relate to other humans, how we relate as social groups, and how we relate to ourselves. We are always relating to ourselves through our self-talk, for example, and through the choices that we make that impact our future selves. And so here's the formula. In a healthy interaction, we practice integrity and honor dignity, and this leads to a greater sense of security and connection. And I'll quickly unpack this for listeners. So integrity is the integration of our core moral values of compassion and justice and our behaviors. When we practice integrity, we basically treat the other person with respect, the way that we would want to be treated if we were in their position. Dignity is our sense of inherent or fundamental worth. When we honor someone's dignity, that means we perceive them and treat them as no less worthy of being treated with respect and occupying space on this planet as anyone else. When we practice integrity and honor dignity, this leads us to feel more secure and connected with another individual or with ourselves when we're relating to ourselves. And if you just take a moment and think about a healthy relationship you have in your life, chances are you trust that that other person treats you with respect and sees you as fundamentally worthy. They don't look down on you and you probably feel secure and connected with them. And like most things in life, the formula for healthy relating, it exists on a spectrum, right? A relationship or an interaction is not like healthy or unhealthy. It's just more or less so. So on one side of the spectrum are healthy behaviors. I call these relational behaviors. And on the other side are dysfunctional, unhealthy behaviors. I call these non-relational behaviors. And these are the opposite. They are behaviors that violate integrity. So you treat somebody differently than the way you would want to be treated if you were in their position. They violate integrity, harm dignity, and they lead to a sense of disconnection and insecurity. So you can come back like at any moment when you're having an interaction with somebody and things are starting to go sideways, or you're just feeling off, you're not quite sure what's wrong, you pause. You can always come back to the formula and ask yourself, am I practicing the formula? And Do I feel like the other person is practicing the formula toward me? The more we practice the formula, the healthier our relationships become and the healthier our groups become, right? So this formula, it's not just that a behavior is more or less relational, a group or a system can be more or less relational. In a relational system, right? If you have a healthy family system, for example, or a healthy workplace, that's your system, or a healthy movement, that's a system. That system is one in which enough people feel secure and connected enough with each other. They practice the formula. They feel secure and connected. In a dysfunctional system, people feel insecure and disconnected from each other. And so the formula is really important because the more we practice it, the less we contribute to infighting and pretty much the problems of our world that we're talking about. You know, we think about injustice. Injustice happens when we collectively or individually, if that injustice is on an interpersonal level, it happens when we violate the formula. Okay. With that in mind, now that we have a better understanding of what relational literacy is and how to build it, let's talk about infighting. Because infighting is something that everyone listening to this right now realizes is a problem in the vegan world and has been certainly since I came into this movement 20 years ago. It's changed like the big 
reasons, the big issues have shifted a little bit. But how do you define infighting? So let me talk about what infighting is not first. Infighting is not in disagreeing. Disagreements, you know, are normal, natural, and necessary. They're really important for us to be able to have disagreements about all sorts of issues, like from philosophy to strategy to ideology to values, right? They're essential for creating a really diverse and impactful movement. And some of these disagreements are especially important, like when women or BIPOC, like, you know, people challenge imbalances of power in the movement. So we really need to be careful not to refer to healthy challenges that are helping a movement evolve as infighting, or we could be weaponizing the concept and silencing critical voices. Infighting is also not the same as in bullying, which is, you know, one person using their platform to bully somebody else, their power of platform to bully somebody else. You know, infighting refers to usually two or more people involved. Infighting is basically the same as what we could call outfighting, as any kind of fighting, except that it's directed toward members of one's own group. And infighting, basically, we fight. People fight when they have a difference. Usually that's like a difference of opinion or a difference of need. So we fight when we have a difference with somebody else and we use some form of aggression to get that other person to change. So that's generally the way it happens. It's when we use aggression to impact somebody else. And very often it's to get somebody else to change. And so a lot of the infighting that we see in movements in general, and we'll talk about the, the, the vegan movement, or I would say the animal justice movement here, is it, it revolves around this concern, at least ostensibly, that somebody is doing something that's harming the cause. I have a right to belittle you, to publicly shame you or humiliate you or to say what I want to you because I see you as harming the cause. What you're doing is hurting animals. You know, very often people, not just vegan people, but people generally, we tend to believe that we have the right to abuse somebody as long as we're seeing them as abusive themselves. And this is part of the same mentality that I was talking about earlier. So a lot of infighting that happens is actually really subtle. And vegans have consistently told me, like you just said, you know, like, oh my God, I've been in this movement for a long time. I have seen so much infighting. It's horrible. That's so true. Most of the infighting is actually quite subtle though. And so it's like an eye roll, for example, which is an expression of contempt. Most infighting in general is expressed through shaming behaviors. You know, the primary way that we aggressively get somebody to change is by somehow shaming them. It's like basically the idea is if you can make somebody feel badly enough about themselves or about something, they'll just change. Of course, generally it doesn't work that way. But this is what infighting is. Infighting basically happens when people don't practice the formula for healthy relating, when there's a difference and we violate the formula for healthy relating. And it shows up in all different ways. The primary way it's expressed is through communication because communication is the primary way we relate. And we see it on a movement-wide level, you know, like advocates, activists fighting each other, you know, from different countries or within the same country, it doesn't matter, but individual activists and advocates fighting each other. But we also see a lot of infighting on the organizational level, teams in organizations that fight each other and interact in relationally dysfunctional ways. So how big of a problem do you think it is in the animal justice movement? And what are some ways to address it or end it? Well, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. It's like 
If you could imagine that the movement is like a lifeboat, you know, and the crew on that lifeboat is like animal justice advocates that are trying to pull as many animals out of the water as possible, save as many lives as possible, while some of the people on the boat are like shooting holes in the bottom, you know. So we're, it, it is ch- causing massive, massive losses to the movement. On infighting.org, we have actually a bunch of statistics, financial costs, burnout, recidivism, people quitting the movement, people just becoming frustrated and misanthropic and advocating ineffectively. So they're actually not only not attracting new vegans, but they're turning people off to veganism and making them even more resistant. It is a huge problem. And I think the reason it has gotten this far and it continues to be a problem is because for most people, it's an abstraction. It's like, okay, I'm really frustrated about infighting, but like, what am I going to do about it? What do you do about it? But At infighting.org, we've really broken it down for people like, okay, here it is. This is the problem. Here are the causes and here are the costs and here are ways that you can immediately become proactive as part of the solution. And we can talk about if you want the causes. Yeah, let's do that. I I wanted to just underscore the importance of infighting.org and For everyone here listening to this, I really think you need to bookmark this site Read a little bit from it every morning while you're caffeinating like I'm doing right now. Also get How to End Injustice Everywhere, which, by the way, is a book that is not only focused on the animal justice movement. There are certainly a lot of ways it is, but there are also a lot of ways it isn't because this is an issue that is social justice movement wide, not just animal justice movement wide. Let's go back to what you were just saying, though, Melanie. You offer practical tools to raise awareness and reduce infighting within justice movements. What are some of those tools and strategies? Well, it might be useful to talk about some of the causes first because the tools will make more sense. So there are a lot of causes, but there are like, I think, eight key causes that we list on the website. But I'll, I'll talk about the big ones. So one we've already touched on, which is that most people need to really build relational literacy. Most of us have simply never had any real instruction, formal instruction in how to relate in a way that's healthy. And that includes how to communicate in a way that's effective. Building relational literacy can literally transform your life, and that includes effective communication, and can certainly go a very, very long way toward reducing infighting because we can come to our differences with the ability to discuss them and learn from them and deepen our understanding, right? And so what this means is that when we approach a communication, we don't approach a communication as though it's a debate, You know, the debate model is helpful in only a small handful of situations, right? When you're in a courtroom or running for political office, for instance, the debate model is a win-lose model, right? So in a healthy communication, our goal is not to win, which means to make the other person lose. It's not to be right, which means to make the other person wrong. Our goal is mutual understanding. And when we bring this into our communication, it can transform our communication. It doesn't mean we don't have an opinion, but the agenda that we approach a communication from, if, we, if it's healthy, will increase the chances that we will have a productive conversation rather than a divisive debate. So often when vegans disagree with each other, we have like, I don't know if you've seen these like YouTube debates, vegan versus vegan, and they're just like fighting each other. But you know, when you invite somebody to debate you, 
what you're basically doing, nobody wants to lose. The goal of a debate is to win. You're inviting somebody to come up with all of the reasons as to why their position is right and you're wrong. And if they do that, by the end of the conversation, they'll probably have sold themselves on the rightness of their position. So, you know, simply learning to shift from debate to discuss, which is one of the tools of effective communication, can be very transformative. Another big cause of infighting is that we have high rates of secondary traumatic stress in our movement. A lot of us have become traumatized from witnessing what we've witnessed, from knowing what we know. Even if you're not traumatized with a capital T, chances are you're dysregulated. You know, dysregulation is the experience of your nervous system being out of balance. When you're dysregulated, that means that you feel a charge inside of you. It could be really mild, but it's there. You know, you might feel overstimulated. You might feel angry. You might feel frustrated. You might feel anxious. When you're dysregulated, you are emotionally out of balance. Your nervous system is out of balance. And studies have shown that in this state, even if it's mild, you're less rational and you're less connected to your empathy. And that means that when you go into a communication with somebody, especially when the stakes are high, you know, animals, lives, and deaths, for example, you are less likely to engage in a productive way, and you are more likely to be defensive in that conversation. And dysregulation is contagious. And this is really, really important for advocates to be aware of. Dysregulated people dysregulate people. So think about, like, imagine that you're like, fine, you're waking up, you're like having your morning coffee or tea, and you're reading your email just casually, you've had a good night's sleep, you open an email, subject heading urgent, all caps. That's all it takes, right? You're already stressing me out. Let me (laughs) take a sip of my tea real quick as you continue to (laughs) dysregulate me. Go ahead. (laughs) So you went probably from regulated to dysregulated immediately. And studies have shown that when you are on the receiving end of like non-relational communication, you are likely to reproduce that communication yourself. And studies have also shown that when you're dysregulated, you're more likely to reproduce non-relational communication. So a lot of us are chronically dysregulated and we don't even know it. And we're dysregulating people around us and we're getting triggered easily and we're reactive and we're fueling the very dynamics and the very sort of body state and mind state that makes it really hard for us to practice the formula and communicate effectively. I mean, you can know the formula, you can know all the principles and tools for effective communication, but if you don't know yourself and you don't know when you're dysregulated and how to what's called self-regulate to bring yourself down back into a place of regulation, it's going to be very hard for you to practice those tools. So really, it's important to learn about your experience of dysregulation. We have tools on the website for you to do this and learn how to self-regulate. There are a lot of somatic, like basically body-based exercises that you can do to do this and, and other types of exercises as well. And learn to help others regulate. This is called co-regulation. Co-regulation is the act of somebody with a regulated nervous system helping somebody with a dysregulated nervous system come back into a place of regulation. And 
One way to do this is to practice the formula. And another way to do this is to simply be a calming presence. What psychologist Kathy Weingarten calls a compassionate witness. Somebody who is listening, somebody who is witnessing, somebody who is not judging, and who is acting as a calming presence. What happens very often is that whoever is dysregulated dictates the level of regulation in a dynamic. Like two people encounter each other, one person's dysregulated, the other is not. Usually what happens is the one who's not dysregulated becomes dysregulated as a reaction, as opposed to saying like, oh, wait, hey, I noticed that this person here is dysregulated. I'm actually going to try even harder to stay regulated and hope that my regulation can help them come into a place of regulation. Oh, I love that. I love that because it's also a very clear and explicit way that we advocates can support other advocates. I know that's really important to our Hen House listeners. And to be clear, you're not saying we shouldn't be angry. I mean, anger is something that makes a whole lot of sense given what we know about animals. You caution, however, that righteous anger often prevents advocates from reaching their goals. So let's talk about anger. Anger is appropriate and necessary, right? Yeah, absolutely. So anger is the normal, like legitimate response. It's an emotional response to witnessing what we perceive as an injustice. Your anger is a sign that your moral compass is working. Your anger is an important emotion because it gives you the motivation, the impetus to take action on your own or another's behalf to rectify something that's unfair or unjust. What matters is how we relate to our anger. When we relate to our anger in a healthy way, we can use it for transformation, for good, for ending injustice and problems. When we relate to our anger in an unhealthy way, it ends up becoming harmful and creating more toxicity. So when we relate to our anger in a healthy way, this means that we understand it, we see it for what it is. It is nothing more than an emotion. That's it. Anger is an emotion. It is a data point alerting us to the fact that we are witnessing something that we think is unjust. That's it. And so when we relate to our anger in an unhealthy way, we are merged with our anger. We're blended with our anger. The anger and we have become one. We're looking at a situation through the lens of anger, right? So it's the intensity of anger, but it's not just the intensity of anger. It's our relationship with it. In the former case, when we relate to our anger in a healthy way, we are distant enough from it, even if it's intense, that we can see it for what it is and identify it. We can say, for example, I'm feeling angry, not I am angry, or even better yet, a part of me is feeling angry. And if you're ever like really hijacked by your anger, this is a strategy you can use. You can actually say that to yourself. A part of me is feeling angry. You can even say a part of me is really feeling angry because you know what? No matter how angry you are, there is always that witnessing self within you, that witnessing part of you that has not gotten hijacked by an emotion, even if it's a really small part of you in the moment. So when we're merged with our anger, we say, I am angry. And very often it has the charge of contempt and contempt is a relationship killer. Contempt is an incredibly, incredibly damaging emotion. Contempt is the feeling that we have when we've placed ourselves in a position of moral superiority to another or others 
And we're looking down on them and we're seeing them as inferior, in particular as morally inferior, right? So when we're in a position of contempt, we're much more likely to harm people's dignity, to act against the formula. Remember, the formula includes honoring dignity because a person's dignity is their sense of inherent worth. And we're thinking of and seeing somebody as less worthy of being treated with respect. When you feel contempt for somebody, that is a red flag. That is a red flag that you have lost connection for your empathy with them and you've lost connection for your compassion with them. So when you feel contempt, that's a good time not to take action. And that means not to be communicating from that place because if you do, there's a good likelihood you're going to shame that other person and shaming behaviors are incredibly toxic and are epidemic in the world and certainly in our movement and are something that cause, we can talk about shame if you want to, but cause a lot of harm. Wow. Okay. So I don't want to take this in a different direction and you're the psychologist, not me, but I felt like I would add that some of the work that I've personally done around that moment of anger, of like recognizing that I'm feeling angry has also involved parts work. And I've done that with myself, not with a therapist, just for the record for anyone listening. And what that has looked like is reparenting or expressing empathy for little Jasmine, honestly, and reassuring her that she is safe, seen and heard. And I know it sounds kind of woo and a little silly, maybe to some people, but it's been revolutionary for me in terms of being able to then approach my anger from a healthy way and not a vulnerable, terrified way. I love that you said that, you know, and what you're referring to is internal family systems, right? And psychologists today, many of them say, you know, there's not one unified psyche per se. Our personality, our psyche is like made up of a lot of different subpersonalities, subparts. And when we really understand these parts, particularly when they get activated, right? We have a lot of young parts. For example, when you're a child and you have an experience that has been hurtful to you or traumatic to you, you know, the way your psyche deals with that is by creating like its own personality, its own part of your personality to manage those feelings. And what happens later in life is that if we haven't worked on ourselves and sort of integrated these parts, you know, they can become activated. So for example, you could have a part of yourself that's terrified of abandonment. If you had a parent that was unreliable. And so any sign of potentially being rejected can trigger this abandoned part. All of a sudden you can feel completely hijacked by your terror of being abandoned and blend with that part. Look at the world through the lens of that part. And one of the ways to heal that part is not to do what most of us have learned to do, which is to tell it to shut up or to ignore it or to just power forward, but to say, you know what? All of the parts of myself exist for a reason and they all want to keep me safe. They just are doing it in their own way. And you listen to that part and you understand that part and you say, okay, I, a part of me is feeling anxious. Part of me is feeling afraid of being abandoned. Why? What's going on? You dialogue with it. You know, these are vulnerable parts. And then we also have these other parts. They're called protector parts and they're the harder parts. These are the parts that tend to get more angry rather than afraid or sad. And so when your anger is triggered, you can also do that when it's really triggered, right? When it's not just, okay, I'm feeling angry and it's an emotion. I'm going to pay attention to it and ask myself, what's going on here? 
do I need to take action here? You know, that's not necessarily a part getting triggered. That's an emotion. But when you get hijacked by your anger, that can very easily be a part of you. And you can pause and say, oh, wow, there's this part of me that's really angry. And really dialogue with it. Ask yourself the question, what is it that I'm so angry about? You may well have really legitimate reasons to be angry, but get to know that part of yourself and get to know why that part feels so strong that it's taking control of you and basically hijacking your perceptions. Yeah. And this is all directly related to what we're talking about today, because, you know, if I person and the abandonment thing you used as an example is literally my story and probably so, Mm. so many other stories But dealing with that and not conflating it with what I'm feeling in the moment relating to, let's say, uh, fear of being shamed. You brought up shame, fear of being shamed Mm -hmm. for inserting myself into an infighting situation in order to help mitigate it. All of that is very important so that we can show up as like our best relational selves. I'm not sure if Mm -hmm. I'm saying all of this in a way that is nearly as exquisite as you are, but I want to go back to shame. And I want to go back to why justice is an important reframing of what we need to accomplish for animals. So tell me about the problems with shame and how we can refocus. Yeah, well, so shame is, let's differentiate shame from guilt first, because many, many people conflate these two terms. They think they're the same experience, but they're not. So guilt is how we feel about a behavior, right? We feel guilty when we think I've done something wrong or I've done something bad. Guilt is a really important pro-social emotion. People who don't feel guilt are people who don't feel the necessary remorse they need to to course correct and change their behaviors in the future. Shame is not how we feel about a behavior. It's how we feel about ourselves. When we feel guilt, we think I did something bad. When we feel shame, we think I am bad. Shame is a feeling of being less than, of being less worthy than others. It's the feeling we have when our dignity is harmed. And people are understandably highly, highly defensive against feeling shamed by others and feeling shame in general. Shame is an incredibly corrosive emotion. It is an incredibly widespread emotion. Thanks to the relationally dysfunctional mess of a world that we've all been born into, most of us carry around a lot of shame. Because shaming communication, shaming attitudes, shaming beliefs, shaming behaviors are so common. Why else would we buy things that we don't need to the degree that we do and do do a lot of things that we do in our lives? So shame is very corrosive and very problematic. And most people are highly defensive against even the threat. Studies have shown that we're defensive against even the threat of being shamed. So if you even think somebody is going to shame you, you become dysregulated, essentially, which again means that you're less connected to your rationality and you're less connected to your empathy. So often when people in general, here we'll talk about people in the animal justice movement, you know, we have a difference of opinion from somebody, whether it's somebody who we want to get to go vegan or another vegan whose opinion we disagree with, the assumption that we have is like, well, if I just make them feel badly enough, then they'll change. They'll want to change once they feel ashamed enough. And by the way, I would avoid guilting people as well as shaming people 
because most people don't separate those. Most people do not separate their behaviors from their character. And as soon as people feel guilty, it automatically flips right into shame because of the way that we've been conditioned. And, you know, we don't need to make people feel guilty or to make people feel ashamed in order to get them to change their behaviors or their attitudes. In fact, what the research shows is just the opposite. The more you shame somebody, the more likely you are to create the opposite outcomes of what you want. You're communicating to somebody when you're shaming them, when you're looking down on them in the first place, before you even open your mouth. If you're looking at someone and thinking of them as somehow inferior to you or to others because of choices that they've made in their lives, how they live their lives, the fact that they eat animals, the fact that they advocate veganism in a certain way, whatever it may be, when you have that attitude towards someone, you're not a safe person for that person to be open to, right? If you want somebody to really open up and reflect on their attitudes and behaviors, you want that person to be vulnerable. It's like you're asking them to drop their sword in a sword fight while you keep yours pointed at their face. They're not going to be vulnerable with you if you're not a safe person and you're not a safe person if you're standing in judgment of them, placing yourself on a higher rung of the moral ladder. And when you really understand, and I can imagine a lot of people listening to this are thinking, because I hear this all the time when I have this conversation with vegans, oh, but I am morally superior because not eating animals is morally better than eating animals. And to that, I would say that not eating animals is less harmful than eating animals to animals, of course. Not eating animals reflects the values of compassion and justice toward animals, more than eating animals does. Not eating animals is engaging in a relational behavior, whereas eating animals is engaging in a non-relational behavior. All of that is true. That has nothing to do with your moral value or your worth. That doesn't make you better than anybody else. Because human beings, we, all of us, we are nothing more nor less than the hardwiring and biology that we were born with and every single experience we have ever had throughout our lives. We can't be more or less than that. It's just not possible. So expecting somebody to be different than who and how they are, I always say this, is like expecting a tree that's been rained on not to be wet. When you look at somebody who's eating animals and you think that you wouldn't be doing that if you were them, that's not true because if you were them, you'd be doing exactly what they're doing because you would have been born into their body and born into their life and grown up exactly the way that they have. This does not mean that we don't hold people accountable for problematic behaviors. We obviously have to. But if we can hold people accountable while honoring their dignity in the process, we are much, much more likely in encouraging them to change those problematic behaviors. And so many times I hear vegans expressing this sentiment of like, when people engage in a behavior that's causing harm, that's not compassionate, this gives us a free pass to not be compassionate toward them. Think about it, right? Compassion is a feeling. Compassion is a state inside of you. People have more or less access to their compassion because of their experiences and their hardwiring. No other reason. It's horrible when you can't access your compassion. It is such a painful, terrible feeling. Think about how you feel after you've been sitting on the phone with Verizon or, like, or T-Mobile <laughs> for 45 minutes, and then you get disconnected. Oh, my God. That happened to me yesterday. Yesterday. You get it. Like, immediately. It's really hard to stay connected to your compassion. So I talk about how when we can access our compassion, that's a privilege. That is a gift that we have. Just because 
you can access your compassion more than somebody else that doesn't make you better than they are. It means that you have more access to your compassion than they do because of your life circumstances and your biology. That's it. So just as we wouldn't look down on somebody who doesn't have as much food to eat as we do, we shouldn't look down on somebody who doesn't have as much access to their compassion as we do. We should recognize our compassion as the gift that it is. That is so beautiful. I do this thing while I'm interviewing people where I mark a clip so that we can potentially put that online later. And I marked 10 clips in what you just said. So I feel very strongly that that is an incredibly powerful and extraordinarily important point that you're making. And Melanie, we have to close up so that I have time to do some bonus with you. Uh, So let me just ask you a, a quick and super easy question. How do we end injustice everywhere? Where do we start? The good news is that I believe the only reason that infighting is as problematic as it is, is because we have never collectively, actively tried to address it yet because it's been this sort of abstraction. And now we have tools, we have understanding. Honestly, if we can take on the industry of animal exploitation as well as we have, we can heal our movement. So just come to infighting.org. There's lots of information and lots of tools. And please share this website widely. And How to End Injustice Everywhere also has information and tools in it as well that hopefully will be helpful. And so, you know, I think that most people in our movement are doing an incredible job. And, you know, I feel honored and privileged to be able to support them. And this is just one more tool to support the great work that's already being done. Melanie, there were so many more things that we could have discussed. And I just, I want to really strongly encourage listeners to please continue this dialogue, how to end injustice everywhere. Get the book, go to infighting.org and bookmark that. And thank you so very much for joining us today on our hen house. You have to come back sooner than later, please, to maybe we can have more of this dialogue. I really appreciate it. And if you could just stick on the line with me for just a few minutes, I promise I won't take too much more of your time. But thank you, Melanie. Thank you. I could talk to you forever. It's like amazing. Thank you. Remember when we came to you with the fabulous news that Dr. Bronner's, the ethical personal care company that we all know and totally love, was making chocolate? Well, now we have some even more exciting news to add to that. This fall, Dr. Bronner's is adding three flavors of oat milk chocolate to their magic all-one chocolate line. That makes 10 total flavors of ethically produced vegan chocolate goodness. The new flavors are crunchy hazelnut butter, creamy mocha latte, and golden milk chai. Oh my God, I cannot wait to try all of them, though I personally am most excited about the creamy mocha latte because mocha and I, we go way back. The new oat milk chocolate flavors will be available on the Dr. Bronner's website and at select retailers nationwide beginning October 24th, 2023. These will be absolutely the perfect autumn treat. If you want to learn more about Dr. Bronner's magic all-one chocolate line, head over to drbronner.com. That's www.drbronner.com to find out more about the sourcing, ingredients, and production of the magic all-one chocolate line and try it out for yourself. 
Anxieties are rising. Our first story this week is from Hordes Dairyman. The title of the article is Animal Rights Trends on the Horizon. So yes, they are keeping an eye on you. This is by one Emily Ellis from the Animal Agriculture Alliance. That's not that easy to say. Just try saying that five times fast. Animal Agriculture Alliance. All right. So they have been keeping an eye on you and me and everybody else. And based on their monitoring, here's a look into some of the trends and strategies that they expect to see into 2024. First, they expect right to rescue campaigns to continue. When they wrote this, uh, they obviously didn't know about Wayne Shung's conviction, but clearly that is not going to stop DXE uh, from from these campaigns. So I, I would say this is still very true. Uh, in fact, the day he was convicted, they came out with the results of a of a new right to rescue investigation of the exact same places that that were involved in his conviction, and. According to this article, the extreme animal rights group Direct Action Everywhere has been the primary group spearheading the, quote, right to rescue campaign. And the group has seen a mix of wins and losses in court and will continue to battle it out into 2024. Yeah, well, you're right. All right. Two, pressuring food brands into, quote, unquote, animal welfare commitments. They like to put things in quotes. (laughs) Like, like, why does that need to be in Who are they quoting? This points out that, you know, animal rights groups are continuing to pressure restaurants and and food service brands, et cetera, into, quote, making public policy commitments that make it more expensive for farmers to stay in business and drive up the cost of meat, dairy, poultry, eggs and seafood in the grocery store. And you know what I say to that? I say, yeah, that's exactly right. And I couldn't be more thrilled. Many of these policy changes, she points out, contradict animal welfare expert recommendations and are less sustainable than current practices. Uh, yeah, contradict their animal welfare experts who, you know, I don't think we should be really relying on, but what do they mean by less sustainable? Do they mean that it, they probably mean that it makes it more difficult for the industry to sustain itself? All right. Pushes to shift toward quote unquote plant-based diets. Again, <laughs> What is with the quotes? So they're talking about HSUS's campaign to update campus dining menus to include more quote-unquote plant-based options and fewer animal-based items. Animal-based is not in quotes. <laughs> it obviously means something, ne- they, it's, it's a way of conveying how negative you feel or something, I don't know. Promoting fear about animal agriculture's role in public health. Well, yeah, I think that that is a very good idea to promote some fear about this. I wish there was a little bit more fear about it because, you know, they're going to kill us all. First of all, they're talking about COVID-19 And this is what she says. Initially, they were claiming animal agriculture was the cause of COVID-19. I don't remember any such claim, like from the very beginning. I mean, unless they're talking about the wet markets, which, you know, still is probably true, though, you know, a lot of people are claiming it's not true. But when did that happen? All right. Anyway, once confirmed that it was not, that animal agriculture was not the cause of COVID-19, which I don't remember anybody ever saying. They shifted their story to say animal agriculture will cause the next pandemic. Well, yeah, I definitely do remember a lot of those articles because they're absolutely true. And that is still a problem. She talks about antibiotic use has been receiving a lot of attention. Yeah, it has. As well, it should. Of course, animal rights groups are claiming that animal agriculture is to blame. Yeah, well, they are because it is. 
All right, using ballot initiatives to further their agenda. How dare they? How dare they ask people to vote on these things? She thinks it's a terrible tactic because the ballot process bypasses traditional legislative procedures like uh, being bought by animal agriculture. Uh, No, that's not what she says. Traditional legislative procedures that allow for testifying and consideration of the implications of a potential law before voting. Yeah, because legislatures do such a great job of uh, of just completely looking neutrally at the uh, arguments of industry and the arguments of activists. Yeah, it's God forbid that we should allow people to vote on anything. For issues like animal welfare, emotions play a major role in decision making, and it doesn't always align with research and expert recommendations. Yeah, emotion seldom aligns with the recommendations of the industry because apparently they don't have any emotions. I mean, unless you count like greed and and nastiness as emotions. She ends with a plea to for a tax deductible donation to uh, Animal Agriculture Alliance, which is, of course, a not for profit. Oh, don't let quote unquote chicken anxiety, lots of quotes, scare off consumers. They're actually admitting to their anxiety. Finally, they must be listening. This is by Elizabeth Doman, and this is from Watt Agnet. And she's talking about a new social media trend, which I, you know, I like, I've never really gotten on TikTok. As you know, social media is really not my area of expertise drives me crazy. And I've never really started on TikTok, but apparently there's this great thing going on TikTok. It's a new trend. And according to Elizabeth, the poultry industry needs to be aware of it. Quote, video confessions, confessions, no less, video confessions of users admitting that they fear undercooking poultry have gone viral. Some are even revealing that they are so concerned that they've turned to other proteins. Hashtag chicken anxiety has over 70.5 million views on the social media platform, and that number continues to grow. Well, I would say that somebody's seriously onto something here. Like, hooray, whoever thought of this one. The first quote they have, from one user. I swear my chicken anxiety eventually led me to veganism. You know, maybe we finally found the answer. I I couldn't be more thrilled. Actually, the article then does go on to admit that undercooked chicken actually can be dangerous, causing the spread of Campylobacter, Salmonella, or Clostridium perfringens. Uh, Those things sound pretty bad. And according to the CDC, You'll know chicken is properly cooked when its internal temperature reaches 165 degrees Fahrenheit. So what are they going to do? Like get on TikTok and suggest to people that like what temperature they're supposed to cook their chicken to so they don't die. That sounds appealing. Although consumers may be tempted to wash raw chicken, don't do it. I don't even know why. And I don't want to know why. The industry needs, this article says, needs to develop fun and educational videos. <laughs> There's a good job. Imagine that. Like, like, all right, today I'm going to write a, a, a fun and educational videos about a dead bird and salmonella. The, the people who work for these companies, they, they must be crazy. That's all I can think. All right, finally, is another article from um, Watt Agnet. This one's pretty depressing. Broiler breeding efficiency comes unraveled. And this is an article that's talking about something I was unaware of. It's basically summarized in the in the headline. Breeder productivity trended most 
significantly higher through the 1990s and 2000s and hit an all-time high back in 2012, but has retreated steadily since then and more noticeably of late. They're talking about how many chicks each each hen produces. And this is for broilers, not, not laying hens. What they're looking for is lower feed conversion and mortality rates at the grow-out phase. And, uh, you know, they go through the numbers and talk about how in 2012, they killed a lot of hens because of, because of the economy. Then numbers started to go up. Uh, the number of average number of chicks hatched per breeder kept going up and reached an all-time high of 176.2. And then by 2015, it was it was starting to go down to 168.1. Then there was a pandemic that caused a big plunge, but that turned out not to be because of the pandemic, because it extended into 2021. And at that point, rumors surfaced that the U.S. broiler industry was also plagued by a rooster fertility issue in its breeder ranks. And it's kept going down, downward trajectory in 2023. Thinking about this whole issue is tragically sad, but, you know, it's, I guess, the really one sad thing about it that actually affects the birds even more harshly than the usual is that they have to have more breeders uh, and subject more more hens to this horrible life in order to produce the same amount of chickens. And the article concludes, if the trend continues, it could ultimately prove restrictive enough on production capabilities to where serious market imbalances appear as a result. You know, I think it's just evidence that there's only so far you can push these animals. Uh, you know, I hope that's what evidence is. Like, it turned out that they found animals that they could push unbelievably far. They could treat them unbelievably horribly, and they would still live and they would still reproduce no matter how sick and miserable and awful they their lives were. They could still churn out more chicks, and it would just be the best thing in the world for hens and for all of the other farm animals, if they if that just would stop, if they just somehow could could stop producing these babies for these monsters to make money off of. All right, that's it. I'm 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 ending on a sad note, but let's face it, that's what we do here, and that's it for this week's rising anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you enjoy the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end-of-year fundraising. We understand that not everyone is in a position to contribute financially. And of course, I love you all no matter what, but we have had a rather challenging year. So if you are able, we could really use your help. And this is the perfect time to make a donation because between now and December 31st, all contributions will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000 if we make it to the $25,000. And so listen to me, we have so many exciting announcements. We have revamped our membership options. We would be totally honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. So visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our new tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can be a part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Henhouse Heroes, or of course our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include weekly bonus content, access to our engaging flock exclusive spaces in our online community, and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me live in the audience 
for a virtual recording of an Our Hen House podcast interview where you can meet the guest and ask questions for the bonus segment. And listen also, since we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you appreciate our hen house, and if you believe in our mission to mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, and if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of independent media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be matched. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated and tax deductible to the full extent of the law. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org support. That's ourhenhouse.org support. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us and leave reviews where you are able to on social media. Just find us at Our Hen House. And if you're one of the listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Walenska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so, so much for your support, your compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.